Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We've been talking about record low interest rates for a decade now and they kept getting lower and lower. We would talk about a record low and then there'd be a new one, but things are starting to change and the implications are absolutely enormous. Today, I'm speaking with Shane Oliver of AMP, who has been talking economics to Australians for decades now and does a fabulous job of cutting through the noise at a time when there is a lot of noise. Shane, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Gemma, and great to be here. Shane, there's so much to talk about in economic news right now. Uh, It's quite extraordinary. The very big news in the last couple of weeks was Australia's inflation number, which came in much, much higher than expected, although not as high as some other parts of the world. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. And it's it's a big problem. Economists like myself and more so central banks have been hopeful that it would prove to be a temporary issue associated with the pandemic. Uh, You may recall in the pandemic, people couldn't go out and spend as much on services, go on holidays. So a lot of spending was concentrated on goods uh, that led to a massive boom in retail sales. Uh, electronic items, household furnishings, homes even, um, new cars, new boats and so on. And the problem is that lots of workers couldn't go to work and there was disruptions, not just in Australia, but in China and elsewhere. So you had this problem with strong demand and constrained supply and that was okay initially because companies could run down inventories, but those inventories ran out and they had to put up prices. And all that problem has gone on for longer than expected, partly because of the ongoing problems with the coronavirus. I mean, we may think that it's sort of under control in Australia, but there are still issues there and companies still go through periods where they've got a lot of staff off, unfortunately. And of course, uh, in China has the zero COVID policy and they've announced lockdowns, uh, might be starting to ease in Shanghai, but they're announcing one in uh, Beijing. So that's causing ongoing problems as well. And then throwing into the mix, we had the war in Ukraine, which of course meant disruptions to the supply of commodities. And some of those commodities come from places like Russia and the Ukraine. 25% of the world's wheat exports come from Russia and Ukraine. So it's not just hard commodities like oil and copper, and nickel, it's also soft commodities. And then finally, we had the floods, which affect uh, fruit and vegetable prices down East Coast Australia. So all of these things have fallen into the mix. We've seen inflation in the US rise to 8.5%, in Europe at 7.5%, in the UK, Canada, New Zealand, it's around 7%, give or take a little bit. All those central banks have been raising interest rates, and Australia looks to be playing catch-up with our inflation rate surging to 5.5%, and of course, this putting a lot of pressure on the Reserve Bank. Uh, and so whilst the Reserve Bank was able to say, well, we'll, uh, uh, we don't expect a rate hike until 2024 at the earliest, of course, it's had to change its tune quite dramatically given that surge in inflation. Yeah, it's quite incredible. And you've summarised beautifully the extraordinary range of factors really feeding into this. You think each one independently would be big enough to dramatically change the economic landscape. But when you add them all together, it's quite an extraordinary situation that we find ourselves in. Do you think there's a risk that we will catch up with the US? I mean, they're dealing with inflation of 7% plus at this point in time. Well, that's 
the risk. And so far, we seem to have been heading in the same direction. Uh, the Reserve Bank has been saying, well, we don't have some of the problems that these other countries have. Uh, energy prices haven't been going up as much. Um, jobs market is, uh, you know, we've seen a return to normal in terms of labour force participation. So more workers have come back into the labour market. It's going to take longer for wages growth to pick up. The problem is that as each quarter has gone by, the Australian inflation numbers have been playing catch up with other countries. Uh, we've now got a very tight labour market, suggesting that it's only a matter of time before we start to see wages growth pick up. I'll bet it's going to take a while to catch up to the US. Wages growth in Australia is still a bit less than 2.5% as at December, where the latest, most recent numbers related to, whereas in the US, it's around 4.5%. So we've got a fair way to go, but we seem to be heading in that direction. And even our energy prices are now starting to rise again, unfortunately. Uh, by energy, I mean, not just petrol, we know that one but I mean electricity costs are starting to rise again, uh, reflecting a whole bunch of factors with uh, electricity retailers being forced to pay higher prices for electricity in the wholesale electricity market in Australia. So these things suggest that, yes, the Reserve Bank has a bit more leeway than these other countries, but by the same token, you don't want to push that too far. It's uh, and, and you've also got this problem that, yeah, this is something we haven't seen for 30 years odd years, you know, it's such a high rate of inflation. I know people say it was the highest rate of inflation in Australia since the GST was introduced in 2000, so that's 21, 22 years. But if you strip out the tax impact of that GST impost, it's actually the equal highest inflation rate since uh, 1990. So you've got to go back a long way to get inflation at this sort of level. In the US, it's the highest inflation rate since the early 1980s. So again, back to the tail end of the high inflation 1960s, 70s and 80s period. And the problem with that period was that inflation started to rise in the late 1960s. Policymakers, governments and central banks tended to say it was temporary, uh, blame it on the war in Vietnam, whatever. Of course, it kept continuing. Uh, they they were able to um, get it under control briefly uh, a few times in the early 70s. Um, they tried some dodgy things like wage and price freezes. They didn't work at all. Then the problem is that by the time the OPEC um, oil embargo on the US came along in 1973, inflation was already out of control. Inflationary expectations had already increased. People were starting to think, well, this is permanent now. So when you had that shock of 1973, it just blew inflation into the stratosphere. So, by which I mean about 18% in Australia and similar numbers ultimately in the US. So if, if you don't get it under control early, it can have a habit of getting locked into the system. Uh, companies start budgeting for not uh, 5% uh, price increases every, or not 2% price increases every year. They start budgeting for 5% price increases. Likewise, workers start saying, well, we've had enough of this. We're going to demand much higher wages. And workers start asking for much higher wages as well. And then you run this risk, you've got this, some sort of wage price spiral. Um, and we don't really want to see that. And the only way to end that sort of thing is uh, with recession which the US did in the early 1980s and Australia did in the early 1990s. And after that, we got it under control. But we don't really want to go back to that. Uh, the best thing is to do what the New Zealanders recently have said, uh, referred to as a stitch in time, saves nine is the full saying. But if you can do a little bit now, a bit more aggressive than might have been talked about a few months ago, but get that up front, um, send a signal out there. Inflation is ultimately going to come under control. We're going to make sure. Uh, and then that ultimately or hopefully keeps inflation expectations down. So that's probably the only thing 
central banks and governments can really do in the short term to try and control inflation, putting on a wage price freeze like we saw in the US and Australia at various points in time, those things don't work. Um, compensating people for price increases by government handouts, that doesn't really work. It just adds fuel to the fire, so to speak. Uh, the only thing you can really do in the short term is, is tighten monetary policy. And longer term, you have to do things like Reagan and Thatcher and Hawke and Keating did, which was to make the economy operate as smoothly as possible by doing economic reform to boost productivity. But it's hard to see Australian government, whoever wins the next election, doing much of that. They're certainly not promising much of that. So it leaves the Reserve Bank in the driver's seat on this one, and that's that's why they're now having to look at interest rates. I love that historical summary. I think it's incredibly helpful because certainly I wasn't around in the 60s and 70s, certainly didn't know much about economics when I was starting out, and you missed a lot of the early part of that, all of my adult life has been really a period of declining inflation uh, and certainly declining interest rates. You know, we learned about it at university and at school, and yet it's never really had any kind of real or material impact on our lives. But it's going to be very interesting for you know half the population to try to adjust to the situation. It, it certainly will be. Like I was a kid in the 1960s, teenager in the 70s. By the time I got to university in the early, the late 70s, very late 70s, early 80s, you know, inflation or stagflation was a hot topic. And of course, my early part of my career was about getting inflation under control. When I started, the 10-year bond yield was about 14%. Uh, and that was a lag response to the very high inflation we had in the 70s because investors simply didn't trust governments to get it under control. And now, Fortunately, they did get it under control, but it took a lot of lot of effort to get there. Um, but that period we've been in for the last 30, almost 40 years uh, has actually been a very good one for financial markets because as inflation went from very high levels, initially starting in the US and then Australia eventually, uh, to very low levels, um, it meant much lower interest rates. We could borrow more to buy houses. It's a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> um, and but it also uh, made shares look more attractive because if you if you're only getting one uh, percent on your bank deposit or whatever the number is, it used to be four percent, used to be way more than that. But as it comes down, then investors say, well, I might as well have more in shares. So the the, the whole asset sort of world we've been in has benefited immensely from a shift from high inflation to low inflation. Um, and it would be a shame to see that go in reverse, which is why this period we're going through now is so important that central banks ultimately do get it back under control. Yeah, I think that's really interesting for those of us who haven't lived through a period of high rates or a period where rates were increasing, because I think that's important too, right? We've seen them fall, but many people have never seen rates rise or not on a loan that they personally were holding. It's hard to understand what an extraordinary tailwind that's been for asset prices. Can you talk us through that, what that tailwind's been, how impactful or how much of an impact that it's had? It is critically important that people understand this. I mean, normally you think about the return you get from an investment, whether it's a property or a share, it's some function of the income flow you get on it or the dividend yield or the rental property yield you get the value of the dividends or the rents divided by the value of your investment. Um, and then the other part of the return you get is the capital growth. And normally the capital growth in a sort of a longer term way is some function of the growth in the income. 
So if earnings and dividends are rising at, say, 6%, then over time, you'd expect you'll get 6% or so capital growth from your share and likewise for rents. Um, But if you're going through a world where inflation is falling and therefore interest rates are falling, uh, then investors, they undertake something that you call a search for yield. So an investor who used to get maybe 10% on their bank deposit or their government bond says, well, I'm no longer getting that. I'm getting some fraction of that. Um, And therefore, maybe I'll put some of that money into the property market that I used to have in the bank. I'll put some of that money that I used to have in the bank and I'll stick it into shares or property um, because I can get a high yield out of shares and I can get a high yield out of property that I can get out of my bank deposits. And so that has the effect of pushing up the value of property and the value of shares relative to what it otherwise would have been. So you end up with a third component to the return you get. Not only are you getting the income flow, which is the dividends or the rents, and capital growth associated with growth in that income, but you're also getting a valuation effect as investors say, well, I don't no longer need to, to buy shares on a PE of 14 times. I'm happy to buy them on a PE of 20 times or 25 times or whatever it is, or I'm happy to buy property on a much lower rental yield than I used to be happy to buy it with. And the mass of all of that is that you get capital growth over and over and above the capital growth you would have got just relying on the growth in the income you get. So you get this third leg, third boost to the total return you get. And you could argue that has been a major driver of the very high returns we've had, not every year, but on average over the last 30 years or so. Um, and it's been because of um, moving from a high interest, rate, high inflation, high interest rate world to low inflation and low interest rate world. Um, so if that goes in reverse, uh, suddenly there's a bunch of investors who say, "Well, gee whiz, I can now get a much higher return on my bank deposit or in government bonds." They take their money out of property and shares, and you get this reversal of the search for yield, which then acts as, as a depressant on the return you can get from property and shares. Now, hopefully, some people might be saying, well, surely your rents will go up faster or your dividends might go up faster in a high inflation world. That's true, but it's a question of how quickly they go up relative to how quickly yields go up on other investments as to whether they match off or not. But the point is that we've been through a world uh, which was very favourable for investments over the last 30 years, and that that world obviously depended very much on uh, inflation remaining low. Uh, and if we've come into a world of higher inflation and higher interest rates, it does pose a bit of a question mark as to whether those very high or returns will be sustained. Maybe we're moving into a slower um, returning environment. Just think about the property market. Over the last uh, 10 years, in fact, over the last 25 years, property prices have gone up uh, many times relative to people's wages. How's that possible? It's quite simple. Um, If your interest costs are collapsing, your interest rates are collapsing, you can borrow more and more and pay more for property, um, even though your wages aren't going up much. But if suddenly interest rates start going the other way, uh, you show up at the bank, you won't be able to borrow as much. And therefore, um, new borrowers coming into the market won't have the same capacity to pay. And that could mean downwards pressure on property prices. Uh, We may see a little bit of that in a cyclical sense over the next 12 months, 24 months. Um, But if we go into a world where the broad trend in interest rates is up because of higher inflation, say over the next 10 years, then what was once a tailwind for the property market 
what you said at the intro, basically, that every so often we get a new record low in interest rates. If we now go into a period where every time, uh, you know, we look at interest rates, the broad trend is up. If when they pull back, they don't pull back to the previous lows, then that reduces the capacity to pay of borrowers and buyers and obviously uh, means that the property price growth we've become used to ends up being a lot slower. And maybe it's even negative, hopefully. Hopefully it's not, but um, uh, some, in fact, would argue well, maybe hopefully it is in terms of housing affordability. But the point is that the tailwind from falling inflation, falling interest rates for property markets, for share markets, may be turning into a bit of a headwind going forward um, if we move into a world of higher inflation and higher interest rates. And this is why this whole issue at present is so critical um, that, that ultimately central banks are successful in getting inflation under control. I'm reasonably confident that they're aware of all these issues um, and hopefully this will, this will happen. But obviously, the risks have gone up a little bit uh, that maybe we go into a rougher period uh, as we try and get these, these issues under control with inflation. That's an exceptional summary. And I think front of mind for anyone who has a grip on these issues. I just saw a headline saying that house prices are now back at COVID levels. And I was looking at it thinking, I think you mean house price growth is at pre-COVID levels because prices are up 30 to 40%. Yeah, Pretty that's... sure they haven't fallen 40% in the last month. It's, um... so, yeah, there's, there's often a confusion in the world between the rate of growth and the level of something. Some people can't get their mind around that one. And, you know, it is fair to say that the rate of growth in house prices nationally was 0.6% on the CoreLogic numbers out today, 0.3% in the capital cities, in Sydney and Melbourne, they're actually slight falls. Um, you say, fair enough, yeah, that's the lowest since COVID was a big issue. Um, but that's the rate of growth. The le- as you say, the level of prices you know, in some areas, yeah, 30 40% up where they were. So it's, uh, you, you try to tell a gen... A millennium or a Gen Z person trying to get in, so our prices are lower than they were at the time of the GFC. They say, "What do you got rocks in your head?" <laughs> <laughs> I feel like sending a note to the sub-editor. But yes, there's a difference yeah. between the level and the growth. The obvious outcome of higher inflation, we've been talking about inflation, 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 is higher rates, and this is what you've been describing for us. What's your take on the outlook now in Australia specifically? Now we've got hard data in the form of CPI that prices are really moving higher and we know asset prices have been moving higher for quite a while. Where do you see interest rates going? Where do you see them landing? I think we've got more rate hikes ahead of us and this has been story for other central banks that have embarked on rate hikes uh, and unfortunately they've got more aggressive as they've gone on. You know, the RBNZ, the New Zealand Central Bank, the Bank of England and the UK, um, the Fed, Canada and so on and several others um, have started off with small moves and then it's got turned out to be bigger moves. Um, I, I think we're probably looking at a few more rate hikes. By the end of this year, we look at, we see the cash rate, that's the rate the Reserve Bank sets as being at 1.5% uh, and we see it getting to 2% next year. Now, I know a lot of people will hear that and say, gee, that, if you've got a mortgage, that, well, that's a big rise. You know, a standard variable mortgage rate, you know, at the low point uh, recently has been down around 3.5%, maybe 3% if you negotiate a particular deal. I know, I know all banks have the things called the standard variable mortgage rate, and then there's the rate people actually pay. And I think the standard variable mortgage rate is typically around 5% or so, but the rates people actually pay have been well less than that. So we're coming from around 3 3.5%, and we're probably going to head up towards 
uh, 4.5%, maybe 5% uh, for variable mortgage rates. And of course, we've already headed up for the fixed rates. You know, at the low point, they were down at 1.9%. Um, they've already pushed up, depending on the term to maturity or the term of the of the loan up to around around 4%. So we've already seen quite a substantial increase there um, on the fixed rates, but there's obviously a fair way to go, a long way to go in terms of the variable rates. I guess yeah, there's a couple of things to note in relation to all of this. That, that might sound fairly scary because for some people it will mean a doubling in their mortgage interest payments. You know, if you could get a, a, a three-year deal at 1.9% or a two-year deal at 1.9% uh, 12, 18 months ago, when that comes to an end later this year, if it's a two-year deal or maybe next year, if it's three years, uh, you might be paying 4%. So you, you've, you've roughly doubled your mortgage rate uh, on the basis of that. Uh, and that sounds fairly scary. And there's a few things to note about this. I mean, the Reserve Bank's done a lot of looking into this and basically they found that as we went through the pandemic, this is a good thing, a lot of Australians put a lot of money aside and many of them used it to pay down their mortgage. They knew that these are record low interest rates, you know, we better take advantage of this and pay down our mortgage faster. So some of the work they've done suggested about 40% of households are well ahead on their mortgage such that even if interest rates went up to 2%, so the cash rate went up to 2% and you add 2% onto your variable mortgage rate. Um, even if that happened, they probably wouldn't see an increase in their payments for the simple reason that they're already paying more than they need to. It's a similar story with those on fixed rates. But of course, there's a bunch of households, the Reserve Bank also found, you know, 25%, 30% of households who are just making the minimum payments and they'd probably see quite a substantial rise in their monthly interest uh, payments. But that broad conclusion is that most of uh, households with uh, mortgage debt would be able to withstand a rise in mortgage rates um, without experiencing a lot of pain. But there is a group who would probably experience some increase in payments and some pain, which would probably mean they'd have to cut back their spending elsewhere in the economy, which ultimately, of course, is what, partly what the Reserve Bank wants. might sound perverse, but they want to slow things down a little bit to get inflation under control. But I think the, the broad point to note from all of this is also that uh, since last October, APRA has been requiring that the banks impose a interest rate serviceability test. So when you show up for the mortgage and you might be borrowing at say 2%, they would have said, well, you should be able to pay at least 2.5% more um, uh, if rates go up by 2.5%. In fact, since October, that buffer has been 3%. So if the banks have been doing their job correctly, and these days they, they by and large do, um, they would have tested their customers to make sure that they could withstand not just a 2% rise in their mortgage rate, but up to a 3% rise if they've been borrowing since last October. So I'm not in the camp that says, well, mortgage rates are going to go up so much, it's going to cause a massive increase in mortgage stress and we're going to see mass defaults by Australian borrowers. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I know these concerns were around back in 2009, 2010 when they last raised interest rates and, of course, we didn't see mass defaults. But the weakness will come for the property market where we're going to see a bit of a dip, mainly because if you show up, to borrow, you won't be able to borrow as much as you could 12 months ago. Therefore, the capacity to pay will have gone down. Therefore, um, there'll be some downwards momentum on house prices. But that's that's basically, in a nutshell, we see interest rates going up to take the cash rate to 2%, which will roughly add about 2% to, uh, to variable mortgage rates. 
that sounds pretty reasonable. <laughs> I think most of us can deal with that. It's interesting. I wonder if there's also going to be a demand effect. And I'm speaking from my own personal experience where everyone we know is renovating or planning to and doing quite fabulous things, but because the cost of uh, mostly inputs for construction seem to be going through the roof and builders are trying to pass those costs on. Uh, if there are higher rates as well, I wonder if there'll be quite a dampening of demand on that side of things as well. I think there will be. And it's not just the higher interest rates and the building costs. It's that people will, obviously those have already started will have to continue, but many will say, oh, gee, this is cost, going to cost me 10% more or whatever it was compared to what we originally um, were thinking, say, 12 months ago when we first started planning this. And if I go to the bank, I'm going to have to pay a higher interest rate. I think a lot of people will put it on hold and then say, well, by the same token, you know, we can go on overseas holidays again. And with airlines putting on more capacity, putting on more flights um, in time, that will bring down the cost of airfares again. So I suspect that we will see a rethink on the part of households delaying uh, the renovations that have been the big focus for the last couple of years and uh, switching back to services, which altogether is not necessarily a bad thing. It's probably a good thing. We've seen a skewing in demand. Everyone wanted to build something, try to get a tradie to do something. There's <laughs> a bit of an ask lately. Um, and you've got to pay a lot for it. So I think naturally the way these things go is that as the price goes up, people demand less of it and they go to the things that cost less. Um, and that's what we're going to see here. People will reallocate their spending back towards services, which have gone up in price a little bit, but not as much as anything associated with goods, such as building housing-related projects. So, yeah, I think we will see a response um, here. People will have second thoughts. And it's a broader context. Yeah, what you've seen over the last couple of years is entirely justifiable. We had record low interest rates. Now, guess what? I guess people concluded, well, okay, we've gotten through the pandemic. It didn't destroy the economy after all. So might as well buy houses or do renovations and take advantage of those low rates. Now with rates going back up again, uh, that's going to lead to some normalisation, if you like. So it's not necessarily something we should be living in extreme fear of. Um, and ultimately, it's probably a healthy thing to the extent that a normalisation in interest rates will hopefully get inflation back under control and and head off longer-term damage that out-of-control inflation would cause. Yeah, absolutely. I think also for those of us who were able to work from home and who were encouraged to work from home, you suddenly realised you needed very different things from your home. So uh, there was also the effect of the uh, the pandemic. One complicating factor that I'd love your thoughts on when we talk about the pretty desperate need for central banks to start raising rates, get a lid on inflation for all the reasons you've talked about it, is that there's real anxiety about tipping the global economy into recession, which sounds counterintuitive, right? Prices are rising, wages are rising, demand for everything is absolutely red hot, but there is this risk that you go too hard, too fast, and everything falls to pieces. The latest US GDP figures actually pointed to a contraction. So how did that happen? Uh, it's, well, it's a worry and it's part of um, the concern we've seen recently in share markets, which are having another, or been having another bout of volatility, uh, is that yeah, central banks will push too hard and that will cause a recession. It's, there's a technical thing called the yield curve 
which for those who don't follow these things very closely, is one guide to whether monetary policy is tight or not. So basically, you look at very long-term interest rates and compare them to shorter-term interest rates. And if the longer-term interest rates are above short-term interest rates, that's a good sign for the economic outlook. But if the longer-term interest rates are below short-term interest rates, that's a bad sign because the money, the long-term bond market is saying, well, things aren't so good when we look out 10, 15 years or whatever it is. So the long-term rates have gone down relative to short rates. So that's that's also been a bit of a focus lately with the yield curve very briefly inverting in the US, i.e. longer-term rates fell below the short-term rates. But it's there's also a danger in reading too much into it. Whenever central banks start raising rates, there's often a narrative that this will go too far, they'll end up crashing the economy, but it doesn't always happen. The recent GDP numbers in the US were depressed. This was for the March quarter. GDP fell, um, well, in their terms, that it fell 1.4% annualised, but to get it back into our terms, you've got to divide that by four, which means a fall of about 0.3 or 0.35%, which is a small contraction in the economy in the March quarter. Now, if you look beneath the surface, which I suppose is what economists are supposed to do, um, you find that the contraction was caused by inventories, companies running down their inventories, and that's part of the supply shortfall that they're suffering from, and also trade that the American economy was actually so strong that it sucked in a lot of imports, <laughs> a lot more imports than exports. And so trade and inventory uh, detracted from growth, whereas the underlying economy grew about 3% on an annualised basis in the March quarter, which again, you've got to divide by four to get on Australian terms, which is about 0.7, 0.8% growth, which is actually quite reasonable. So I think if you look at the service, you find the economy, at least in terms of demand from consumers, businesses, and demand for business uh, for housing investment was still quite robust. So I don't think it's in recession yet, but obviously there's a risk there. The more the central bank raises interest rates, the more they might find they've gone too far, but we won't know that for some time to come. And even if there is a recession, in the US, it probably wouldn't hit until late next year. And right now, it's too early for share markets to start worrying about that because the share market normally only leads the economy by about six months. So my conclusion is, yes, there is a risk of recession, but it does uh, would come about if the central banks just put the brake on too hard. But right now, we're a long way away from that uh, yeah, the Fed's started to raise interest rates, uh, but we're still looking at you know, rates down around 1% or less, which historically is still pretty low. We're a long way from saying that interest rates are tight, likewise in Australia and other countries around the world. you know, We've, we've sort of flicked off record lows, but it's a long way from saying interest rates are at tight or onerous levels. So yes, it's a risk, but I think it's um, for something further down the track. It's more of a concern for later next year. Given that analysis, which is really helpful. <laughs> so we're not talking about a, really a serious contraction in the economy, quite the opposite, in fact, from what I just took. There is this concern, though, that we will move into a period of stagflation, which you did mention quite a bit earlier, where inflation's still running relatively high, but the economy is not growing as quickly as you would like. And Japan has had that experience for three decades now even longer perhaps, uh, where they just simply haven't been able to get away from having record low interest rates without effectively killing the economy. Do you see that as a likely outcome? 
It's sort of like it's a risk, but I don't think it's uh, the most likely scenario. J- Japan's problem, uh, well, th- th- they've just had sort of a stagnation. They, they haven't had the high inflation that you had in the 70s. Like in the 70s, we had stagflation with low growth and high inflation, whereas Japan sort of only had half of that. They've had the stagnation, but they've also had near zero inflation. So they're a bit of an odd one out. They they made the mistake uh, going the other way when it, when inflation fell of keeping monetary policy way too tight and then therefore they got themselves locked into a period of economic weakness, both inflation and economic growth. And we in, the, in uh, Australia, the UK, Europe, uh, Canada, New Zealand seem to have managed to avoid that um, by running much easier monetary policy. We were sort of verging on that perhaps prior to the pandemic, but we seem to have avoided that now. Now the risk is that we slip into 1970s-style stagflation, that is high inflation and low growth at the same time. Um, yes, that's certainly a risk, but I think, again, it comes down to what central banks can do if they can tap the brakes, slow things down a bit and get inflation back under control, helped, I guess, by supply picking up to more normal levels as the pandemic recedes into history, fingers crossed, touch wood, which I'm doing right now, um, then, you know, they, they should be able to avoid that. But, yeah, you'd have to say it's a risk. You know, we haven't seen this pick up in inflation for a long time now. And, of course, the last time we saw it on this scale was in the late 1960s, early 70s, and we did get stagflation soon thereafter as we went through the 70s. But at least the central banks have the history books on hand and some of them still have experience studying that uh, period and therefore, uh, you know, have a little bit of confidence that, that they should be able to avoid it. But time will tell. You can't, you can't rule it out completely. Generally, I use this time in an interview to ask for advice for investors. You know, how do you think investors should respond to this market? That kind of thing. But given maybe half our listeners have never seen interest rates above 4% and probably never seen home loans above 4%. I remember when home loans fell below 6%. I was so excited. I was like, my God, I'm going to save a fortune. Uh, Perhaps you could give some more broad advice for managing in this new world for people who just haven't been through this before none of us have been through this before right that's right uh you know i uh i didn't get a mortgage till they were about 10 percent or something <laughs> so um i say it sounds high today but i i, I didn't have a mortgage when they were 17 percent, which is what we saw in the very early uh 90s and the late 80s um so i've been used to ever lower interest rates and obviously record lows in recent times just on the um, what investors should do in this environment question, look, I, I think it's very hard to time markets uh, through this. Uh, the cross currents are immense. You know, war in Ukraine and Europe, or well, Ukraine so far, hopefully it stays contained. It doesn't get any uh, worse, um, although it's already horrible as it is. Um, uh, we've got the inflation pickup. We've got uh, lockdowns in China, um, periodic COVID issues, uh, central banks tightening. So there's a lot of cross currents in all of this. And of course, recently we sort of had uh, flood after flood after flood on the east coast in Sydney and uh, and Brisbane. So there's all these cross currents. I think there's several approaches investors can take. The first one is to say, well, it's all too difficult. I'll just take a longer term view and look through it. And there is some 
historical evidence suggests that's the best approach. Times of uncertainty is very hard to time markets. Uh, so you just get yourself a balanced investment uh, portfolio, which um, you'll be happy with uh, through time. Doesn't take on an undue amount of risk, but gives you the sort of um, expected returns that over a, a longer period that will uh, address your your investment requirements. Um, and sometimes it makes sense to get advice as to precisely what that would mean. Um, and that just reflects the reality that it's very hard to time markets. So I, I suspect there's a lot of investors who should go down that path. You know, this is just too hard. Just focus on the long term, get the uh, the compound returns that share markets and property markets offer over long periods of time, even though we could go through a period of uncertainty. The other approach is to say, well, I am prepared to put a bit of an effort in. Uh, this might prove to be a fairly rocky period, so therefore um, I will stay invested, but I will skew my investments to areas of the market which might provide some protection against higher inflation. And areas to look at there would be, I mean, value stocks, stocks that are more um, keyed into the cycle, but particularly stocks that will provide a hedge against inflation. And on that front, um, the Australian share market stacks up reasonably well, but particularly resource stocks stick out um, because if we've moved into a world of higher inflation, then commodities provide a bit of a hedge against that. And uh, likewise, if we've moved into a world of increased defence spending, which seems to be the reality we're now in, uh, that means more metals and likewise uh, decarbonisation, the move towards zero emissions by 2050 perhaps 2030 if uh, Labor wins, um, that might mean that, uh, or a faster reduction in emissions by 2030, that might mean that uh, there's more demand for metals uh, as um, you know, we move more quickly towards um, more fuel-efficient cars. If you buy an electric car, you're going to find there's lots more copper in there than there is in a traditional car. So that retooling of the world economy um, could actually also benefit commodities. So that's one strategy where, as an investor, you say, well, I'm going to skew my portfolio a bit towards those parts of the market that provide me some protection against inflation. And commodities and resource stocks arguably do that. You are not the first person on this podcast to make that suggestion. I think people will be really grateful for some for some consensus. Sorry, consensus on where to look for opportunity in this kind of environment. It's a bit challenging for people. Shane, you often provide commentary in the media. You produce excellent research. You do a wonderful job of breaking down complex economic topics. Where can people go to find out more about AMP and the work you do? Well, I'm in a bit of an interesting situation at the moment because I used to work for AMP Capital. AMP had some issues, which many of us would be familiar with. Um, and I think they're rather unfortunate issues, very unfortunate issues for our shareholders. But um, hopefully we now, AMP is now starting to get it, get it uh, back on control of things. But it, it's basically meant that I've moved from the business I was in, which was AMP Capital, and transitioned into AMP. So... But if you do go to the AMP Capital website, you will find most of my reports are in there. If you type in Oliver's Insights um, or Shane Oliver, you'll find reports by myself. Um, in time, though, those reports will transition into the AMP websites. Uh, and again, you would search for Oliver's Insights um, and they will pop up. Um, another option is that I actually 
occasionally do podcasts myself sometimes um, and you can find them on Spotify and usual places you find podcasts. I think they're under the uh, Oliver's Insights uh, banner, but um, that's a fairly new, new thing on my part. Um, but the, the key is to go to the AMP or AMP Capital websites and, and type in Shane Oliver or Oliver's Insights and that material should pop up there. Beautiful. And I would say people listening to a podcast generally do love podcasts. So that's another one for you guys to look out for. And you're also on Twitter because I like following your Twitter stuff. It's really good. Well, that's uh, actually an easy way. If you just follow me on Twitter, I do uh, tweet my reports and you can get them there. The Oliver's Insights note, I usually write once a week, but not always. It usually comes out on a Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, and I do a weekly report, which gets uh, retweeted on a Friday. Um, so that's certainly one way to go. One thing I have found with Twitter is that uh, um, after finding you get yourself in so many arguments that I've had to cut back on <laughs> how many people I respond to. Um, otherwise, you end up in these Twitter wars, which can take up hours and hours and hours trying to respond to them. Um, but I think it's an unfortunate aspect of Twitter that, <laughs> that uh, it has become more narky in recent times. Um, and so uh, that that I think has made it some harder for some people to to get into debates on Twitter. Um, but it is a good forum and I love Twitter because you can put stuff out there really easily and really briefly. And then, of course, if someone wants more information, they can uh, click on the link. So Twitter has been, in my case, since 2011, one of my favourite uh, social media and remains that way. It's a, it's a great place to follow people, I find. A great way to get information. I'm not a big fan of giving it <laughs> through Twitter, <laughs> just partly because you get into arguments, but it's a great way to follow lots of people and get great ideas. Shane Oliver from AMP, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. It's been my pleasure and thanks for having me on the program. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We receive fantastic feedback from you guys. Love getting your questions and suggestions for future topics. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.